This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 144. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPenPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? Uh, better than I might have been, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we were discussing it, this just a moment ago off air. Um, it, it was touch and go there for, um, for quite a while, really. Yeah, I mean, after game one of the Leafs-Habs series... One of the most devastating nights I can remember as a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know, an awful injury to John Tavares, who obviously the team captain has a lot of emotional weight for people in the city as the hometown guy who came home. You know, and then a loss after that. That seemed kind of like an afterthought, but that still put the Leafs in a one-down position in the series. It would have been pretty bleak if we'd had to do a podcast after they lost game two, subsequent to that. And uh, we're certainly grateful they didn't do so. Mm-hmm. But, I remember you mentioned we were chatting after the game one loss, and you said this might be literally the worst loss or the worst I felt after a loss as a Leafs fan, which is saying a lot because we have no shortage of painful losses to choose from. Yeah, not and, to brag, but I'm experienced with that. Yeah, and I, at first I'm like, oh, this can't be the worst because it's a game one loss, right? Like there's mm-hmm. still there's still time, but then you, the t- it, the Tavares injury is just an absolute absolutely gutting experience um and you know thankfully it appears that there's no structural damage to his head neck or spine and cause it, it, at, you know at the time we were, we were discussing this we didn't we had no information about this it, it looked awful it looked really 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 bad like that moment where he tries to kind of get on his knees and then keels over backwards and you can see in his face like he has zero conception of where he is Mm-hmm. that is horrifying it's there, there's really no other word for it and i mean it it'd be a horrible and horrifying thing to see for any player right but for it to be john Tavares, who as you said has so much emotional meaning to the city right as as, as the the star player who said yes to the team you know for years and years and years of star players saying no, of hometown players saying no, this team, you know, isn't well run enough, they're not good enough, for for Tavares to trust, you know, the back half of his prime to the Leafs is, was, was a hugely meaningful thing, and, you know, up until now, we hadn't made that decision worthwhile for him, through no fault of his own, and this year seemed like, okay, this could be the year where we do this properly for him. Mm-hmm. Right? To have that evaporate 10 minutes into game one is really, really disheartening. Yeah, it was awful. And I think you could tell it had an effect on the Leafs. Mm -hmm. I didn't think they played that badly for a lot of game one, but I do think that they were kind of shell-shocked for the rest of the first period. Yeah. And I think it was a factor in them giving up a goal, ending the period down 1-0, and, you know, it ends up in a 2-1 loss to the Habs. I don't know. I've seen the Leafs lose in embarrassing fashion plenty of times in my life. I really find it hard to hold anything against them out of that one. That was an awful, awful looking accident. And to be clear, I don't blame Corey Perry for it. I do not think that he could have done that intentionally if he had wanted to it materialize so quickly. It's just it was a horrible freak accident that 
led to a, a very frightening injury to a player who's beloved. That seemed, you know, to take our, our perspective away from sports whatsoever. You know, we're thinking about his life, his future, his family. And you could tell that that was on everyone's minds. You know, Kyle Dubas was rushing down from uh, from his box, um, calling Tavares' wife, um, you know, to, to let her know what was going on. Um, just a very scary scene. And so it really changed the whole complexion of the series of how we're approaching everything. It, one, it made the ordinary wins and losses thing seem very secondary, but it changed where the team was coming from. And the team came out, you know, saying, okay, we really want to win the next one for John and to really show what we're made of. And I think you can say that they did that in game two. Yes. Um, before we kind of talk more about the hockey side of the series, you know, this is not, you know, I'm not saying anything novel here, but like what the fuck was Sportsnet doing showing the replay of that? It felt like a hundred times. Yeah, it just, I don't know. I, I, like, I get that you have to show what happened, that people, to some extent, need to see it. And you can even make a moral argument up to a point. Look, this is the consequence of head hits. We need to be conscious of the risk that players are taking. But it really felt like it, it went really overboard. You know, seeing it time after time after time. Um... And that's putting aside, you know, the decisions of the Sun newspaper chain to run photos of it and then make a punny title. Cal uh, Dubas called them out for that, and I think rightly so. That was yes. a very poor taste. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, on the hockey side of things, I mean, the obvious... So Tavares is, is, is out for the series, possibly beyond, you know, the he said... Uh, he has a knee injury, which has gone undiscussed in this for obvious reasons. Um, that that kind of arose during the hit as well, um, mm-hmm. which is said to you know be at least a two week time span. And then, you know, uh, we said okay, his struct- there's no structural issues with head, neck, or spine. That he almost certainly has. Well, he does have a concussion, mm-hmm. right? And you know, it's it, structural issues for head, neck, and spine means like okay, his brain isn't bleeding. Yeah, like right? there are awful things that didn't happen but that doesn't mean that what did happen wasn't serious it was very yeah. serious obviously yeah so i think the, the safe thing to assume is that Tavares is out for the playoffs more or less. certainly out for the series if at least make it through maybe they get him back way later but you know for all intents and purposes out for the rest of the year i think that's the best way to consider it yeah and um sorry go ahead yeah well from a big picture perspective this team without john Tavares. Obviously, is not nearly as good. Doesn't mean that they're hopeless, but it's it's a huge loss, and it's not one that can really be replaced or adjusted. You get worse when you lose a, a key star player. But the Leafs are in it now. You know, I think a lot on this podcast we go big picture. How is this team approaching contender status? I think that's legitimate. That's sort of what analysis entails. But at the same time, that's a conversation that we can have. 10 other months of the year, and now it's, okay, can they win the next one? Well, they can. And then see what happens after that. So it's tough. It's a big blow to the team and their chances, but they also have a lot to offer, and I think that they have at least an even chance still of beating the Canadians. It's going to be tight. The Canadians have de facto home ice advantage now because they won 
the first game in Toronto. Right, and game six, which, uh, you know, it's quite likely we get to game six after a 1-1 split in the first two games, mm-hmm. uh, we'll have fans in Montreal. So they might have a kind of a more notable home ice advantage, especially if that kind of um, impacts the referees. And we'll talk about that um, as it relates to game two in a little bit. But yeah, without Tavares, the talent gap between the two teams is obviously way, way smaller. And mm-hmm. perhaps even even. Sorry, perhaps even. <laughs> perhaps even even is a terrible sentence construction. No, I get uh, it though. It, like, it's, it's closer to, uh, to being even. I wouldn't put it all the way there, mm-hmm. but it's, it's certainly a narrower gap than, than it looked to be going in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the idea of the Toronto Maple Leafs is, okay, you can give one of their big two lines trouble maybe, but the other one is going to drive you nuts because it's probably going to have a talent advantage over whoever it runs into. That's a very definite thing when your top two centers are Matthews and Tavares. It's less clear when your top two centers are Matthews and Nick Foligno, even though that worked pretty well last mm-hmm. night. Um, right. Up to a point, as you, I think you were mentioning last night, of course, that Foligno-centered line didn't have the best five-on-five stats, but it seemed to work pretty well. Yeah. So there, there's a couple things that can... Uh, give the Leafs some encouragement. The first is that in Game 1, in what has to be considered a pretty close to worst-case scenario for the Leafs in terms of you know losing their captain mid-game, the emotional shock that comes with that, and also you know the, the disadvantage of running a shortened lineup for the rest of the game, uh, they still actually played Montreal very even and perhaps even better than even. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a low-event game, which is to, in, to Montreal style. But it was an even low event game. It, it, it says something if Montreal is incredibly happy with a low event game that, they, that is like a roughly 50-50 chance of going either way. Right. Right, because there's, there's a lot of universes where the Leafs actually win game one. Yeah, it was by no means a clear blowout. And that's something that maybe we should always emphasize with playoff games. But people look at who won the game. Obviously, that's what matters in the end. But there's a a tendency to treat that as, okay, that's a clear, definite conclusion on these teams. When, you know, it's quite possible for teams to play very close, very hard, very well, but wind up down one or two games as we're seeing in other series. Um, So, yeah, there. I don't think it's a given by any means that the Canadians outplayed the, the Leafs in game one. Whereas I think it's very clear that the Leafs outplayed the Habs in Game Two, so yeah, I, I, that's the I most encouraging say, spin. Yes, um, I'd say that the Habs kind of played their game in in Game One, but much like Columbus last year, their game doesn't guarantee them a win, right? Against against the Leafs, right? The, the things still have to have to go well. So that's, you know, that that's perhaps an encouraging thing in in light of Game Two, where the Leafs, after a very even first period really outperformed the Canadians over the course of the rest of the game. Now, that was also influenced by a, a slew of power plays that the Leafs got. And, I mean, look, we, we talk a lot about on this podcast about basically how lame it is when people just completely, go, you know, bitch about referees. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is that's the NHL that we operate under and nothing makes you sound more like a biased fan or whatever you're, of whatever team than oh, the refs are, you know, are against my team. Look at all the penalties they missed against us. Because, you know, we're biased by 
they almost by definition, you're, you're going to ignore the borderline calls that went in your favor, mm-hmm. right? But, um, and so Habs fans are in that cycle of, you know, blaming the refs right now. And I'm not saying that to throw shots at Habs fans because Leaf fans would absolutely do the same thing if the shoe was on the other foot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think the refing was fine. I thought it was relatively fine in game one. I thought it was relatively fine in game two. This is something we talked about in our preview pod. The Habs do take a greater than average amount of penalties, and they don't draw that many. Right? right. The Leafs neither take nor draw penalties, typically. So, But it's not surprising that the Leafs win the power play battle in that sense. Right? That, that's something you know, that, that is not unforeseeable by any means. Right. And Sheldon Keefe said, you know, when he was asked about this, they said they wanted to turn this series into a war. Well, when you play like that, sometimes you get more penalties. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the substance of his quote. Mm-hmm. And I think he's entirely right. Like the the Habs style is to be very physical, um, to push the limits of the rules, frankly. And we talked about this in the preview pod. That was going to be part of the strategy, especially on the part of the defense. It wasn't only us who pointed that out, and it's not just Leafs bias. Um, Arpan Basu, who writes for The Athletic, who's a Habs writer, said beforehand, the Habs got to push the rulebook a little bit. I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that these two teams are going to even up in power plays, even though that's the tendency of most NHL refs. Because the Habs are consciously going to try to push the envelope. I don't even blame them for it in some moral sense, but I do think, hey, uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, I think the youth youth phrase goes. So, yeah, I like it was a big advantage. Now, that said, there's a lot of chatter out of the Habs from Dominic Ducharme on down saying they basically think that the refs handed game two to the Leafs. That makes a lot of sense for them to say from a tactical perspective. Yeah, I mean, you're going to try and work yeah. the refs, and part of that involves discussing it in the media. So, I mean, that to me, that's just par for the course. Every every, every mm-hmm. coach in every series is, has pretty much said something about the refs at this point. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense for them to do it. And the only thing is it probably, well, I won't say probably, but it's easy to see it having an impact on how Game 3 is refereed. Like, yeah. the refs may be conscious of not giving the Leafs uh, a big differential in power plays. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I hope that's not the case, because I, there's also a part of, you know, to, to what you said about play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You, you can't say, oh, we're built for the playoffs when things get tougher and there's more leniency. Mm-hmm. And then go, wait, hey, wait, no, you can't call penalties on us. Well, yeah. say, well which one are you then? If you're, you're saying you're a more physical, tough team that's going to push the rule book and is relying on refs not calling stuff to the same degree they normally do well if refs call stuff the way they normally do then you're in trouble like that that's you're admitting it yeah that's your failure to calibrate to the standards of refereeing and you know maybe that's hard but i don't have a ton of sympathy for a strategy of like let's break the rules exactly the right amount like by all means i understand why teams would try it but this is what it blowing up on you looks like yeah so I, I hope that, you know, the refs continue to actually call the rule book. I think they've done a fine enough job of that so far. Mm-hmm. We have no uh-huh. bias on this question. Of course, it yeah, helps course not. that the Leafs power play finally woke up and right. did and something. Even in game one, it looked it looked good in a lot of spots. Of course, we gave up the shorthanded goal, mm-hmm. which was, you know, kind of disastrous. Um, 
but in both game one and game two, the power play looked the way we wanted it to. Uh, and one thing I want to point out is the Leafs, to my eye, have been way less predictable on power play entries in the playoffs. They're not just sticking to the drop back. They're actually kind of making passes in the neutral zone. Mm. Right? right? And it's like, it, it seems obvious where, you know, the other team has literally fewer players than you. They cannot cover everyone by definition. So if you have good passers, which the Leafs do, and good skaters, which the Leafs do, you should be able to, you know, take take what the defense gives you in game the zone. The Leafs have done a pretty good job of that thus far. Right, because um, they have to give you something. But as yes. you said, they're, they're outnumbered. So, yeah, and a huge amount of a power play looking ineffective is getting stopped at the blue line, getting turned back before they get set up. Even when the Leafs look relatively static and unimpressive from the setup, and they've certainly done that for stretches, that's still a dangerous position for them to be in, even when they're slumping. Like, they will get a certain number of goals. Right, so, and I mean, I think that was kind of borne out by, by the goals that actually did end up going in. One of them was, you know, relatively a low percentage shot from Sandine that just finds a hole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that happens some percentage of the time. Yes. I'll, and the other was uh, yeah. a, a fortuitous bounce off a post that left a, a price flailing. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the thing, right? And I've talked about this in a different context with the Carlisle Leafs, where they say, well, the goals that went against us were kind of fluky. Right. But if you generate enough chaos and enough chances in the yeah. high danger areas of the ice, a certain percentage of fluky things will happen to your benefit. And so, exactly. Yeah. And Montreal honestly takes advantage of that on five, yeah. at five on five, right? Their whole strategy of, you know, what, when against a set defense of get it to the point, get it on net, create chaos, it, it relies on that sort of, um, on those bounces, which are going to just happen some percentage of the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's encouraging to see. I think Rasmus Sandin was legit impressive on the power play, not just because he scored a goal. And I also want to give Sheldon Keefe a bit of credit for that, just since he's going to own the results rain or shine. I expected Sandin to get scratched going into game two because he had a rough game one with a couple of really memorable mistakes. And Travis Dermott is right there. And yet Keefe put him out again. And he was rewarded in a very tangible way with the goal. But I thought that that was a way of showing faith in a young player that you don't always see from coaches. So credit to him, because that would have been easy to go the other way on. Yes, absolutely. Um, that, that, that is definitely worth noting. In terms of the five-on-five five play, I mean, I think the big change from game one to game two was not really the Leafs' defense, it was the offense. The Leafs' defense has actually done a relatively good job of containing the Habs in both of those games. And alternatively, you could say the Habs' 5v5 offense has not been particularly impressive at getting through to the Leafs' defense. They'll get a couple decent rush chances, which I think are kind of just par for the course. Like any NHL team playing any other NHL team is more or less going to get some chances. Mm-hmm. They'll get a couple good cycles. But um, what happened in Game 1 with the Habs did very well and what I think their plan is, generally speaking, is they really limited the front of the net. The Leafs didn't get, you know, their traditional red blob of death in front of the net. And that changed in game two, where at five on five, the Leafs were really, really strong at getting to the net. And I, and I mean, it, it sometimes kind of is a little regressive to say this, or a little, sorry, reductive, not regressive. 
Um, but I think sometimes it just comes down to players executing better. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that's what it looked like to me in game two. It, it's just least players were getting better positions. They got their sticks on pucks that were going to the net and created deflections. They were better positioned for rebounds, and part of that's also luck with bounces going their way. Um, they, uh, they, they, they created some turnovers off forechecks and turned them into, into shots, right? I think Matthews did that really early in the second period, and then uh, Nylander and Felino did that really early in the first period. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't know if there was anything tactical that really changed so much as the Leafs executed much better in game two and conversely you know the Habs will be saying oh we didn't do execute as well in in game two especially in dealing with pressure but we we know there's you know a bit of a susceptibility to the Habs from the Habs defense of you know when you pressure them they, they there's gains to be had there absolutely I think the most impressive Canadians player in game one was Josh Anderson and we talked about him in the preview and we said this guy is a holy terror on the rush and he cut clean through the Leafs' defense on the first half school of the series. And he was dangerous all night on the rush because he kept pressuring, finding opportunities to get his feet moving and to kind of charge through the opposing defense. If you don't make turnovers in dangerous areas, if you don't make mistakes holding the puck in the opposing zone, the Habs' offense suffers mightily, I think. We were talking about their reliance on rush chances. And they don't need that many of them to burn you. And as you really pointed out, every team's going to get some. But I think that's kind of what it comes down to. You're talking about, you know, the better execution. That includes not turning it over. Because the Habs defense really is what generates their offense. Their ability to pressure people into getting up the puck. In dangerous situations. I think a lot right. of teams want that as their identity. They're saying, you know, we, we play good defense and it turns into good offense because it suits the the moral leanings of coaches to, who are trying to get players to play aggressive defense. But I think in the Habs case, that's actually what they do. And I think we saw the, the difference that comes when the opposing team handles it better as opposed to worse in game two. Um, right. And yeah. it, it's a consistent problem with the Habs. Where if you deny them the, the, that low-hanging fruit of you know, their defense, you're out of position, the defense can make a simple pass to a forward leaving the zone. Now they have space. Now they have maybe a three-on-three three or a three-on-two with one defensive forward you know, applying back pressure. They can succeed in those situations because those are relatively more straightforward. Mm-hmm. And they, they do have good rush players like Josh Anderson. Um, and even like fast, like Yoel Armia and Paul Byron are, are not traditionally great offensive players, but they're quite good on rushes because mm-hmm. of their speed. Yeah, they're um, quick, they're dangerous, and they're able to, to burn you in a hurry. But, mm-hmm. you, you know, like the, the thing that I would note, for example, is a lot of Habs fans, I think, are going to look at that game and say, okay, the refs gave us a rough ride. We were in the box. What do you expect us to do? But it's worth noting the rate of expected goals for at five on five that they had in that game would have been way below any NHL team over the season, just at five on five. So not looking at the power plays or anything like they were struggling to generate anything. And so I think the fact that they finished the night with one goal four is earned. They were not getting quality chances and they don't have a ton of above average finishers, uh, which leads to the most 
possibly obvious lineup change that they could make going into game three, which you definitely predicted in the preview pod, which is play Cole Caulfield. Yeah, and you know. I, I, we, we both said, you know, we fear the Habs more with Cole Caulfield in mm-hmm. because he, he is a very, very good talent and he can absolutely bust a game open with one move. Yeah. And so you've really got to be thinking, uh, you've talked about this before, in terms of David's strategies for the Habs, now they're they're much less of a David than they were a week ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. But nonetheless, they have problems generating offense. And for all of his flaws that I assume that he has as a young player, a small player, still trying to break into the league, Caulfield promises a level of offense that a lot of the Habs just don't. And so, yeah, I would be kind of surprised if Caulfield didn't cycle in, to be honest. Mm-hmm. He seems like such an obvious move to make. Right. And I also generally think the Habs are going to play better than they did in game two, right? We, we yeah. talk about what the Leafs did well, but the Habs, I think, also made some mistakes or that, you know, I, I don't think the Habs played their best game either. Right? No, they, they played quite poorly. And again, if, like, yeah. if the Habs are that uh, impotent on offense on a regular basis, they're not much of a team. And we know for a fact they're generally better than that. So, you know, that's fine. Um, there was just a lot to encourage you, especially after the first 10 minutes, because I thought the, the Habs came out reasonably strong to start game two. And I was pretty worried around the time of that first goal, honestly. Like, I figured, oh boy, if this is the Leafs' best punch after, you know, they've had time to to think things over and try and hype themselves up, we're in trouble. And then the Leafs took the game over, and that was kind of the end of that. So, yeah, I I definitely expect a bigger punch coming from the Habs in Game two, game 3. Excuse me. You know, they're going to be on home ice, and they also just have to be better than that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, it, it's hard for them to play a lot worse than they did in Game 2. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, go ahead. The, the power play stuff, I think, really does matter, because... Look, this is a huge possible jinx if you believe in that, but the Habs' power play is genuinely awful. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really, really, really bad. It's like, and you know, like, if they get enough chances, they'll score on us. Maybe they'll right, have a hot he, night, any power play can, but and wow. Every power play, even shitty power plays, they score some percentage of the time. Like the, the, the worst power play in the league is still a lot better than two minutes of 5v5. Yeah. But that said, I mean, that wasn't entirely true for Detroit at, at various points this year, but aside from that. Yeah, they were very special. But, I mean, they still, they funnel everything through Shea Weber. I Like, I've made fun of them for this for, I think, four years now. And there's been no change. He is still their, their big plan. And you know what? It can work a certain percentage of the time. But it's led to a pretty unimpressive power play. And it's, it's looked that way through the first two games and through most of the past couple years. So, run right. by me. <laughs> and if the Leafs can, you know, decisively win the special teams advantage, that is obviously, I mean, goes without saying, that's a huge, that's a huge boon. Um, especially if they're able to sustain the, this level of penalty differential, which we don't really know if that will be the case or not, but there, there's reasons to believe it, it should be. Yeah, like, I think that and this is almost certainly a little bit homer-tinged, but I do believe in my heart a fairly called series between these two teams leads to more power plays for Toronto. Mm. I genuinely believe that that's 
the Habs approach. It's they're going to buff up their defense by pushing the limits of the rule book, as we've been saying. And that is what it is. Um, but, you know, uh, it does make me think that there might be a bit of a sustained penalty advantage. And the Leafs really could do with capitalizing on it. Um, going into this series, it didn't really look like <laughs> it was going to be as huge an advantage as it ought to be. So, yeah, I, I think that in pretty much every respect, the last 45, 50 minutes of game two were what the Leafs want to do to, to win this series. You know, it's, it's not going to be easy now. I think that's been clear. I think there were some people who were hoping that this would be a walkover. And without John Tavares, it's not going to be. It's going to be a fight. Um, but it's encouraging that the Leafs still responded and that they're still capable of cleanly outplaying the Habs. You know, a few more games like that one, and I like their chances very much. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing that, or I guess it's a 1-1 series. The, the Leafs win over the Habs was not close. The Habs win over the Leafs was close. That should give you some level of confidence if you're a Leafs fan. That doesn't guarantee anything, as, as we've said, but mm-hmm. it, it that's not completely meaningless. Right. And so, yeah, there's a lot to hope for there. I also want to uh, to just name something, because we ought to say it at some point. Jason Spetz is awesome, man. I love yeah. him so much. <laughs> it just... Um, you know, his goal last night was the the recognition of hope in a franchise that was really struggling. But also, he's been so good and so loyal to the organization, uh, such a good guy for the team in the dressing room. You know, we talked about he was continuously talking to John Tavares right after that hit. Um, and Tavares apparently said, you know, he recognized Spetz's voice and that helped him ground himself a little bit and forgot where he was. I mean, you just, you gotta love that element. If, if there's some, some real truth into the, the benefit of those veteran leaders type guys, I am convinced that Jason Spezza has whatever it is. So, yeah. I just wanted to put that in somewhere because it's, you know, a nice thing to have happen for the franchise to have a guy like that. So, Absolutely. So, I think we've covered basically the, the substance of the two games. So it's just a matter of what are you expecting going into game three, I suppose. And we've mm-hmm. already hinted at that. Maybe a bit of a narrower penalty differential. If we're really unfortunate, it could swing the other way as the refs try to make up, in air quotes, for game two. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. And we would expect some adjustments on the Habs side, especially Caulfield, who is sitting right there. Um, anything else jump out to you that might be different in game three? No, not really. I mean, on the Leaf side of things, I think the lineup will stay the same. It's kind of a truism that after you win, you don't change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the the lineup changes were the correct ones. Uh, you know, without Tavares, you you don't have room for a no offense player like like Riley Nash. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's a shame because I think Nash could you know serve a useful could fill a useful niche in the Leafs lineup. Um, but that's with Tavares when you have two lines that you can really rely on for offense. Uh, that Felino galchenyuk Nylander line, I mean, 
at least Neander's not playing center, but my God, every playoff, you look at his line mate, you're like, what the fuck happened here? Oh, my Lord. You know, <laughs> I, I was saying last night, though, and I don't know if uh, if I'm on to something, but people always compare Mitch Marner, William Neander, who's better, who's worse. I think Mitch Marner is, like, nearly the best complimentary player on the planet. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he does fantastic work from non-dangerous areas most of the time. And then... The players who forecheck for him or finish for him play a big role in his results, even though he's doing terrific work. Whereas I feel like Nylander can generate maybe a bit more on his own. Uh, I mean, the most evident example of that is that Nylander has a more impressive looking shot. But I, I do wonder a little bit about that just because uh, I thought Nylander's line was pretty effective, stats notwithstanding, last night. And certainly yeah. as good as we could have hoped. Right, I think they got caught like running around on the on the goal against. That wasn't. I blame that a lot more on Hall and Muzzin, frankly, because they they looked terrific on that shift. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, there's only so much you can do as as a forward when, you know, your defensemen are kind of losing puck battles in the corners left and right, and the other team just has the puck in the offensive zone. Yeah, um, we like Muzzin, but like if you were going to. Uh, make a video case for why he's not a real top four defenseman, it would be a play like that <laughs> would be the first thing you would bring forward. Yeah, he he, he didn't. He got good. bullied. I think the whole, the whole play was started by Muzzin overskating the puck in the offensive zone. Kind of unforced error there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Nylander, I think to some extent, he, he does get a little psyched up by the when there's occasions where it's like, okay, cool, it's just me on the line. I'm just holding the puck forever. Yeah. I'm in right, charge like, now. I will manage Yeah, things. just like, give me the puck. It, right? That was his Twitter bio for a while. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't think he's better in that uh, when he's not playing with John Tavares or anything ridiculous like that. But um, I don't think he's going to get, like, disengaged or, or downtrodden at thinking, oh, man, I don't have, I don't have the line mates now. He, he, he seems like the type of guy who has the confidence of, like, okay, no, this is fine. I'm just going to carry it. Yeah, and that's fine by me. And, yeah. and you know what? I, I mean, this is true of a lot of hockey players, but he's been the best player on his line for huge portions of his life. It's just on the Leafs that he often is not. So he certainly has some experience being in that position. Um, Ketchup pointed out, you know, he, he had a great success at the World Championships with Nick Backstrom, who's a brilliant but very deferential center. So, yeah. Um, anyway, it's... I don't see how, if you're Sheldon Keefe, you do anything but run the same line at back, just because it was so effective for the most part. You know, you don't have yeah, an obvious change to make. Yeah, I think you, you run it back and say, you know, do the same, like, we need that same effort again, basically. Yeah. Um, and, we haven't mentioned Jack Campbell at all, mm -hmm. and, and we should, because he's been very good over these two games. He has, yeah. Uh, it's been almost an afterthought uh, with all that's gone on, obviously. The, the Tavares injury takes center stage in discussing this series, but goaltending has not been a problem on the Leafs' end. And right. you know what? Everyone was very quick to lionize Carey Price, as they are seemingly anytime he does anything. I did not think the Leafs generally made him work that hard in Game 1, and I was not that impressed with him. He made a terrific save on a Mitch Marner play, like that was coming off a Royal Road pass. Good for him. That was great. But he was not like robbing everyone blind to the extent that people seem to think that he was or that the 971 save percentage would imply 
And in game two, he wasn't bad, but the Leafs put a lot of heat on him, and he allowed about an expected number of goals. So, if Carey Price is just playing at like an average-ish level, that's not probably enough for the Habs. You know, he's supposed to be a strength for them. Now, granted, as we said, the gap is narrower now with Tavares out, but I think people are very quick to observe him sort of being restored to his former glory when it's like, he's fine. He's been playing fine. He hasn't been a problem. He also hasn't dragged them kicking and screaming to victory. In either I game. think game one was more about the Habs' defense and Leafs' offense. Um, you know, whatever credit you want to give to who to whoever uh in that in that equation mm-hmm. um resulting in in yeah the the Habs doing a good job in preventing the Leafs from getting you know their typical their customary amount of chances yeah exactly um so yeah by and large the Leafs are facing adversity now in a big way that they weren't expected to have to deal with Obviously, it was a serious freak injury. We know injuries happen, but that was, I think, a pretty pretty awful one and a pretty damaging one for the team's chances. But they they showed well in Game 2. And if they do win this series, uh, no matter what anyone says, I think that that is a real achievement. You know, it's not a walkover by any means. Yeah. No, so. I, I, I agree. And... I think I'd view the Leafs as, as slight favorites for, yeah. from here. You know, slight being like maybe fifty-five to forty-five. Mm-hmm. Right. It, um, it's it's an even game, even series. Uh, Montreal has home ice. The Leafs are probably still a slightly better team, uh, even without even without uh, Tavares. And I get a little bit of confidence in the fact that uh, from what we've seen so far, the, the Habs. The Habs' goal is, is really to make it low event and keep it even, evenish to and slightly their advantage. I don't. I think there's just a, a much smaller chance of the Habs blowing the Leafs out than the reverse, right? And maybe that's a little bit myopic and focus on these two games in particular. You know, really any team can see any result against any other team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the kind of offensive limitations that the Habs have make it a lot harder for them to just kind of blow blow someone away. Yeah, and this is what we sort of knew with the Habs, right? They were at their best, a terrific defensive team. But they've never been an offensive juggernaut. They do miss Jonathan Drouin offensively, even if he's, you know, a a limited player in some other respects. And they don't have uh, the same level of game-breaking talent that the Leafs still can call on, you know, with Matthews and Nylander, for example. So... Yeah, I, I think the Leafs have an, a narrow edge, but that swings so much game to game, right? If the Habs win the next one, suddenly the Habs are the favorites again. And mm. conversely, if yeah, the Leafs I mean, take it, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the reality is whoever wins the most recent game sees their odds go up a lot more. And it's, it's worth noting that we'd probably feel less optimistic about this if the order of the games were reversed. Yes, we would, yeah. Right, even though nothing really had changed, there's like the sense of like a trend, even though it's only two data points of like, okay, it was an even first game, and then the Leafs figured something out in the next game. But in reality, it could just be kind of random. There's just no pattern there. Um, so you know, ba- basically, in conclusion, we we don't know. 
Yeah. <laughs> All we can say is we've observed some things in game two that made us feel better after game one where we were despairing as hell. And yes. it's nice to feel better after feeling worse. And so that's something. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and the Leafs, I think if you want to be really encouraged, you can say that the way that the Leafs won game two seems mostly like things that are part of their game plan. The, the penalty dif differential was pretty strongly in their favor. But in general, the Leafs played the way that we would expect them to win a hockey game against the Habs handily. You know, it wasn't a fluke. So, yeah, you can hope for more games like that and say if the Leafs are able to play to form, uh, they're in good shape to win the series despite uh, having a very serious injury uh, that, that hit them very quickly going into the series. So, yeah. Pretty much. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to add? No, I'm good. Great. Uh, same here. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, obviously these post playoff episodes are going to be a bit shorter because we're, we're kind of by necessity a lot more myopic mm -hmm. and, and kind of near term focused. Um, but yeah, we will hopefully uh, have a set up for you after either game three or game four. It's a back to back there. So I'm unsure of how we want to play things. It'll probably depend on how things go. So um, regardless, you can catch all of mine and Foodman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Foodman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.